We've just noticed that in coming to the church culture, because people have been here a long time, there tends to almost seem to be an ownership sometimes of the church. And at times, I'm not speaking necessarily just myself, but just even talking to others, that there's a sense sometimes in which sometimes churches want to call a pastor to serve the desires of the people, as opposed to a pastor coming in and leading the congregation in the mission of God, which is a very distinctly different thing. From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Chris Weigel, and we're glad you've taken some time to join us. We've all experienced a time when someone made an observation about something we're familiar with, and their observation seemed a little out of place. It may have even been offensive. But in reality, the observation wasn't offensive more than it was a much-needed fresh perspective. On this Level Paths podcast, how does a new pastor from the outside begin to reach a well-established congregation? Pastor Heath Bauer moved into the Ashland, Kentucky area and became pastor at Unity Baptist Church. He found himself planted in Appalachia, but he wasn't from Appalachia. Here's Rex Howe. Welcome, everyone, to the Level Paths podcast. My name is Rex Howe. I'm privileged to serve as the president of Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio. I'm here with my friend, Dr. Matt Shamblin, who serves as our Appalachian Research Fellow and on the adjunct faculty of Tri-State Bible College. Brother Matt, it has been a stunning day in Appalachia. The weather is gorgeous. How are you today? Man, I'm doing well. It's been so busy. I feel like I'm running from one place to another. Uh, it's been a busy few days, but that's just the way that it goes as we're heading into summer and trying to get things prepared for that to be as effective evangelistically as we can. So it's been a good day. It's a beautiful day. I'm excited about our guest as we were thinking about who to have on our podcast. One of the guys that came to my mind was my dear friend, Heath Bauer. He's a dear friend, but he's a new friend. And he's a pastor here of a local church. It's actually the grandmother church of the church that I serve. It's actually the grandmother church of about every church in this region. And so I want to introduce you to Heath Bauer. Heath's a pastor of Unity Baptist Church. Heath, how are you doing today? Doing far better than I deserve. We're doing really well over here. You know, one of the reasons that I wanted to have uh, Heath on was not just because of his ministry experience, but because he's new to Appalachia. And I thought while Heath is new to Appalachia, he can give us a perspective on Appalachia that we otherwise wouldn't have. So Heath, tell us about yourself. Tell us who you are. Tell us about your family. Well, uh, I just want to thank you for this podcast, by the way. I've been binging it. It's It's been a wealth of information, just a goldmine for people who are coming into the area and really green uh, and trying to learn and discover that, you know, all of America isn't the same. And even, uh, there's differences even between here and the Midwest. But anyway, it's been wonderful. I grew up uh, a little different, a little ways from here. I still grew up in a small rural context. I grew up in a little town called Clear Lake, Iowa. The only thing you people know it for is we uh, we killed Buddy Holly and Richie Valens, Big Bopper. The day music died is about a mile and a half in a cornfield from my house. Uh, it was just a, it was a very small rural community that I grew up in, but it had some good summers out by the lake. And I sensed God's calling into ministry in high school and really just started crafting my experience there to kind of prepare for that. 
because I was really lousy at public speaking. I put my speech teacher to sleep, literally, and uh, it's not hyperbole. I really was bad. <laughs> so I just started preparing for that, met my wife in Bible college. We grew up in what is called the GRBC, the General Association of Regular Baptists, which is what I learned as I moved here, that it's wildly different from old regular Baptists. So I've got a lot to learn <laughs> as far as that goes. But my wife and I, we got married after we finished Faith Baptist Bible College there. We went to a church on our honeymoon in Florida and joined a Southern Baptist church there back in uh, 97. And the uh, last 25 plus years, uh, just been joyfully working together with our Southern Baptist partners as we've worked at most levels with Southern Baptist culture and life as a church, doing a joint project with the Greater Orlando Baptist Association and Florida Baptist Convention, served 13 years with the IMB, International Mission Board, now pastoring a Southern Baptist church here in Ashland and happy to do so. My wife and I have been married for about 27 years, something like that. So uh, we have three kids. They're all grown and one is married, having our first grandchild this September. So our heart is full. Life is uh, joyfully abundant. Thank God. So tell us a little bit about your ministry calling. How is it that you ended up at Faith Baptist Bible College? Tell us about that calling. Well, growing up as a kid, all I ever knew was that um, you either went to the GRB church in town, which was a Baptist church, or if you didn't go there, you went to Lutheran or Methodist church or Catholic church. That's really all we had. And so that was the only circle I knew. And so it just made sense growing up to go to the GRB Bible College that was two hours from home. And so ended up going there. But I just really sensed that I was trying to find a way to earn a lot of money as a kid. I grew up very poor. There were nine kids in the family, and when I say poor, I mean like my dad didn't believe in welfare, and we struggled. I mean, we didn't have food. I would rescue school food from the lunchroom tables uh, to try to have something to eat that night kind of poor. And so as a kid, I did not want to grow up that way, and I didn't want to live that way. I didn't want my kids to live that way, and so I just kept thinking, I'm, I'm going to make a lot of money, and I, I just kept thinking of different occupations and fields to go into. And God just wouldn't let me go that direction. And I was at a Christian camp one summer, and I met the guy who would be my missions professor later, who was just talking about his work in the Central African Republic and just had a strong sense in which God was calling me out of trying to pursue making a healthy and comfortable living into giving my life and just letting God pour it out as a drink offering for him. And so I started where I begin, uh, where I knew to begin. Uh, that missions professor is really influential in my call to ministry. And so I uh, joined with a double major in Bible and missions. Once I finished that, I just still didn't feel prepared for ministry. So my wife and I, after we finished a uh, missions apprenticeship, we moved down to Orlando where uh, a church down there, the First Baptist Church of Central Florida, they wrote us after we visited them on our honeymoon and said, we'd like you to consider after college coming down here, being a member of our church, and we will underwrite your MDiv. And I'm ashamed to say I didn't even pray about it. I was like, yes, <laughs> we just moved to Orlando, joined the church, and the pastor there, even though it was a big church, mentored me, took me under his wing, really shared with me how to how to be evangelistic, how to do ministry, counseling. I did hospital visits with him. He took me everywhere. And I just owe a great debt of gratitude to that church and that pastor for really bringing me to where we are today and preparing me for ministry. So how is it that you went from Orlando, Florida to service in um, foreign missions? I think it's such an incredible calling to go from, I mean, really the nations that's in Orlando, Florida to the nations from Orlando, Florida. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, I always had a heart for ministry overseas. I was a missions major after all. And, but my professor said, don't try to do overseas what you haven't done in America. If you're not sharing the gospel here, don't make your first ministry experience in a foreign context. He says, if you're, if you haven't discipled people here, don't go over there yet. If you're going to help pastor there, you know, you might want to try learning how to pastor a church here. And so we just kind of dove into stateside ministry. I got my first ministry as a minister of youth and music and evangelism and discipleship and children. And <laughs> it's how it is with a small church. You have a two staff church and really got a experience a wide variety of ministry there. I was able to serve as a lead pastor in a church plant a cooperative effort between GOBA and the Florida Baptist Convention. And it was after we had been doing that for several years that I just, I felt like, how much more experience do I need here before we take this overseas? And just, I had an increasing burden to go overseas. And I wasn't sure at that time where to go. The only thing I knew is being a Southern Baptist, I said, well, let's go with the Southern Baptist Arm of Missions. And so we joined the International Mission Board. And from there, really began to focus our efforts. I knew I wanted to be in Asia somewhere in the 1040 window. God was just really active and at work there. And so we applied with the IMB. We we were accepted and really was just praying about an opportunity to, my heartbeat really overseas was to do discipleship and pastoral training. And so that's really what we focused on. And as we looked at where in that 1040 window is that most necessary, China really rose to the top very quickly. There's a lot of believers in China, uh, more than I think anybody has any concept. The thing is, we don't always know where they are. They're not very organized because they have to be underground. Now, there's a few more organized networks on the East Coast, but especially where I was working in Yunnan province, they were very disorganized. We worked very hard at helping them to develop discipleship training resources and starting pastoral training centers. And uh, our team worked together to start a full-time seminary there uh, in our city. And so that's kind of how we ended up there and really what our heartbeat and passion was uh, in working overseas. Well, I know Rex is going to want to jump in here quickly to the connection of Appalachia and all that. I wanted to point something out. When you talked about uh, GOBA, that's the Greater Orlando Baptist Association. That's led currently by our friend Tom Cheney, who served (laughs) Calvary Baptist Church in Morgantown, West Virginia. And you said that was a relationship between GOBA and the Florida Baptist Convention, which at that time was led by the great Dr. John Sullivan, who is from West Virginia as well. We also bring up the IMB president. (laughs) Well, that's right. Right now, the IMB president is uh, Dr. Paul Chitwood. If you follow Dr. Chitwood on Twitter, you'll know that he is often hunting and riding four-wheelers. He's not from really from Appalachia. He's from eastern Tennessee, or we could say way, way, way western Kentucky, but he's rural nonetheless. And so I just point that out to say, hey, all these rural people, whether you're a rural person from the Midwest or a rural person from Appalachia, God can use you to impact the nations. But that's exactly what we find when we look at the disciples, rural people impacting the nations. None more rural than Abram called from the middle of nowhere for God to bless him and through that bless the nations. And so, Rex, there's rural, there's deep roots in rural right here with our brother Heath. I know you're going to want to talk to him about his call to his place of service now. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested to hear this story, Pastor Heath, about where you were. So take us there and then the calling to Kentucky. So tell us how that transition came about and then what were your first impressions? What have been your first impressions? 
Well, the transition from overseas to where we are today is a, is a longer story than we have time for. Suffice to say that COVID really kind of started a lot of things for us. My wife came back for a funeral and Malaysia borders were shut down at that time. We were in Malaysia working with the Chinese there. I came down with a gangrenous gallbladder, nearly died in the hospital there and was flown home to the U.S., you know, to finish my care. And we came to a place where we knew that we weren't going to be able to go back. We weren't going to be able to serve in the way that we were. And I had for years desired to work on a terminal degree as well. And that's very hard to do in a, in a foreign context. And so we just realized very quickly that through a number of different things, God was closing that chapter of our ministry down. And we began to just pray, God, what now? We're here in the States. I could do seminary full-time and you know work on a terminal degree, but I really never felt led to not be continually doing ministry. That was I, I'd rather be doing ministry and and slow boat the, the education than to not be able to to serve God's people here. And so we began, began to just pray, what do you would you have us to do? And I just have a real heart for discipleship and for preaching and uh and training. And so we began to just pursue what opportunities do you have for us, Lord? And so we started looking through the various avenues that Southern Baptists have a very organized system of churches being able to kind of present their needs. And so we just kind of looked through the the opportunities there and just started praying through and researching and pray. We spent months, honestly, just looking over and praying through things. And this one just kind of came out of left field. We weren't expecting to even look at this at the time, but I had a really great conversation with the search committee and and told them we had a couple of churches that were very serious about us and wanted to talk more. And I said, we haven't you know, made any commitments or anything, but they were they were looking at us. And But uh, as I conversed further with the team, I, I ceased communication with the other churches. I just really sensed from them an unusual desire for the Word of God, an unusual desire for missions, for evangelism and discipleship. And when that became apparent, there's pretty much nowhere in the world I won't go to find people who want to do those things because that it's such a hard thing to find a body of people who desire those things that God desires. And so we just felt in our conversations with them that God was leading us to come here and to work alongside of these brothers and sisters here, you know, to continue the great mission that God has called all of us to, no matter what part of the world that is. And, and you know, for the Jews, Appalachia is the uttermost parts of the earth. So we're still in uttermost parts of the earth ministries, as far as I'm concerned. How long have you been here in Appalachia? About a year and a half, just a little over a year and a half now. So very, very green still. What are your first impressions of the Appalachian culture? Not necessarily just church culture, but just Appalachian culture in general. I'd say unusually so that Appalachian culture is extremely warm. Everybody's been exceedingly friendly with us. I actually thought that being an outsider, that it would it would be a lot harder to break in. And maybe for others it is, but just we just found an unusual amount of grace and favor that God has given to us, not only with our church here, but uh, just with the folks who have lived around here all their lives. And so I expected more resistance than what we got, but folks have been exceedingly friendly, very warm. They're easy to talk to. I can be in Walmart looking at some random stuff and I can go into a level three communication kind of conversation with a fellow. I don't even know his name yet, you know, and we're, we're talking about family and uh, we're talking about politics or whatever, you know, they brought up. So it, they're easy to talk to. Very, very easy to have conversations with. So when you think about other aspects of Appalachia, you think of the culture. What were some of the biggest surprises that you've seen uh, since you came to Appalachia? As I started you know, researching a little more, kind of go into missionary mode here, you know, one of the things that we're trained to do is come into a culture, and let's face it, it's a new culture for me, 
And we want to try to assess, you know, where their values are, where people meet, how they communicate, uh, some of their traditions and things and trying to learn all that. And one of the things that the region is known for is that people tend to stay together and that a lot of folks end up being related to one another. And I thought those stories were probably overblown, but I got here. And the very first thing that I was told when I came to unity was don't make anybody mad because everybody's related (laughs) And to a degree. That's true. You know, when you stay in an area for a long time, your children marry your friends, children and people in the church, and they tend to stay in the area. And so a lot of people, Trying to untwist the branches of the family tree have been a real challenge for me to try to figure out who's related to whom. But that was something they kind of warned us about, that uh, everybody's related, so don't make too many waves. You grew up in a, in rural Iowa. Yeah. Was the location in China, was it rural or more urban? Yunnan province, where we served, was extremely rural, but we lived in the capital city. So we lived in a city of about six to seven million, but then we worked in extremely rural village areas with terraced fields and mud floors. And so our ministry focused a lot on the rural, whereas we had to live in the city just for security purposes. If we lived in a rural area, the government would be following us everywhere. <laughs> in your other rural ministry experiences, Is there any similarity or difference that you can identify at this point between Appalachia and those other rural contexts you've been in? Yeah, I'd say in particular, something that you have to know about, especially Chinese culture and rural Chinese culture is everything hinges on relationship. In fact, there's a special term for it that has a whole study and school of thought in Chinese culture called guanxi, and it's it's relationship. And with without relationship, you can't do anything. But with relationship, you can do everything. In fact, the, if you wanted to and you were unscrupulous, you could skirt the legal system. And so it's not about right and wrong. It's about what you can and can't do and who you don't do and don't know. And I didn't realize how much of that would prepare me for here that I have sensed here, even in Appalachia, that everything hinges on relationship. And if I have no relationship with you, there's a hesitancy to follow your leadership. But if you do have their trust and you do have that relationship and that time, that relational capital invested, that we have found that people are exceedingly generous and hardworking if they believe in you because of the relationship that they happen to have with you. And so I just found that to be a, a extremely surprising correlation between our ministry in China and here. Heath, you have just hit on something that our young pastors need to hear. Matt, would you agree with that? Our young pastors need to know what you just said. Absolutely. You know, you don't lead organizations. You don't even lead to carry out plans. You lead people. And if you don't have those relationships, if that investment's not been made, then you may end up leading a plan. You may end up trying to lead an organization but you won't lead people. What is it? I, I don't know if this is, they say the old Chinese proverb is he who thinks he leads and no one follows is only taking a walk. Well, I don't know if that's originally a Chinese proverb or not, but there's a lot of truth in that, that if you're not investing in people, don't expect them to follow you. I, I've often said this in a preaching class, if you're not building relationships, and this is difficult at times, but if you're not building relationships with the people that you're preaching to, don't expect those people to listen to what you're preaching. There has to be an investment in those relationships. And sometimes that's difficult because in Appalachia, there'll be this surface level impression that you're being let in and people are being kind, but that doesn't mean that we're actually building these long-term deep relationships. Maybe you could give us a little bit of the impression of 
the church culture. You're you're a pastor of a church. You're involved in different aspects of religious culture in the community. When you first came, you're looking at these impressions of Appalachian culture, particularly the church culture. What is it that you found? What I've noticed so far, and again, take this for what it's worth, a year and a half in here, but I've tried to apply a missionary mindset to where we're at. Uh, We've just noticed that in coming to the church culture, because people have been here a long time, because there's so many interrelated relationships, there tends to almost seem to be an ownership sometimes of the church. And at times, I'm not speaking necessarily just myself, but just even talking to others, that there's a there's a sense sometimes in which sometimes churches want to call a pastor to serve the desires of the people, as opposed to a pastor coming in and leading the congregation in the mission of God, which is a very distinctly different thing. You know, like Paul even said in Galatians 1.10, you know, if I were to be a servant of man, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. And so we've got to be very careful to help our people understand that when you call a pastor, you're not calling an employee. You're calling a man who is called by God, who is, biblically speaking, an overseer. And he's there to ensure that we together as a body are doing the ministry together. He's equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, and he's leading you and guiding you in that that God has led this man to this church for some reason because he has something that this church needs, and he has led the church to that man because there's something that God wants to use pastor's life as well. So that's been something that has been just kind of a, a revelation to me, too, is that helping people to understand that this isn't your church and this isn't my church. Pastor is not the head of the church. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. And the goal of the church, the purpose of our ministries, and if we can be honest, the purpose of our business meetings is not to discern the will of the people. It's to discern the will of Christ, which that makes it so important then that we focus on regenerate membership. And that sounds ridiculous to say, of course, church members are born again. And what we discovered, most people thought, when I got here, I found that there was a bizarre view of church membership in the folks that I talked to. I wasn't two weeks into my ministry, and I was already doing my first funeral. And it was for a fellow I'd never heard of. And I was talking to our church folks, and they said, yeah, this guy's a member of union. I said, really? He said, oh, yeah, well, he's been living in North Carolina for 35 years. (laughs) I said, a member of the church who hasn't lived here for 35 years, but he's a member. And so I realized really quick, we have a lot of false views of membership stereotype of a country club church that you kind of, you belong to it. You come and go from that golf club as it suits your needs. If you don't like that golf club, go to a different golf club, but you, as long as you're on the roll there somewhere, you're good with God. And how do people get in on that country club? Well, you just lead them up to the front. Everybody raises their hand and votes on them. I mean, who's going to vote against them, but you haven't even had a conversation with folks as to whether or not that person's even converted. And so a lot of churches, we allow a lot of unconverted people in. We've never heard their testimony. We don't know if they're living in open sin. We don't know if they're cultic in their beliefs. And we're just, we're welcoming them in. And then when it comes time to do a business meeting or otherwise, you know, we're not ensured that we have regenerate church members voting. And that is absolutely essential to making sure that your church is following the will of Christ. Because if you have a lot of tares in the wheat field and it's allowed to overrun the field, it's impossible to discern the will of Christ when you have the neighbor kids voting on what you're having for dinner. You know, you're not part of that household. You're not part of Christ's house, but you're going to vote on the, the key matters of the church. So to discern the will of Christ, you have to have members who are regenerate and willing to follow the leaders that God has called to them. You know, Heath, when I think about this, I wrote down in my notes hyper congregationalism because. When we think about Appalachia, 
Appalachians have always had really this aversion to external influence. The first groups to try to evangelize Appalachia were hierarchical groups, religious groups that were governed without. And the ones who made the biggest progress in evangelizing Appalachia really was uh, was a group that also was governed without the Methodist, but the way that they did it was raised up preacher boys from the community, and those preacher boys evangelized the community. So there was already buy-in, but because of the coal companies who, again, from without, and often the way that Baptists moved into Appalachia was that the Baptists were most cooperative. Can you imagine this world where Baptists were the most cooperative group? I can't imagine how obstinate the other groups had to be. But anyway, that's a, that's a side note, that the Baptists were the most cooperative group. So what happened was the Cobos would be over the church, and if the pastor started preaching something, they were leading contrary to this authoritarian role. They just bring in a new pastor, bring in a new role, a new church, and that's how the Baptist ended up in Appalachia. But I think that we've seen this evolve into this hyper-congregationalism, which ultimately has a lot in common with democracy. It's mob rule, whoever has the biggest vote. And that's not what you find in Scripture at all. I believe in congregationalism, but that doesn't mean majority rules. That means that the people of God are led by the Spirit of God according to the Word of God to discern the will of God. That matters incredibly, to discern the will of God. Heath, you said something that I can't not repeat. You said there's a desire often to call a pastor to serve the desires of the people. Could you speak on that just a little bit more? Certainly. I mean, anytime a pastor comes into a church, there's certain expectations that aren't always necessarily communicated in the abundance of the the search committee conversations. There's a big difference a lot of times between the search committee conversations and you know what you're actually discovering on the ground. So you discover very quickly that everybody has a desire for the church and for the pastor. Everybody has kind of their pet projects, their desires. For some people, short sermons is what they're most interested in. Pastor, around here, we preach, you know, 25-minute sermons or 30-minute sermons, or around here, we get out by noon or we get out, you know, and or other people, it's the temperature of the, <laughs> of the sanctuary or other people, it's a certain ministry. We need to do this ministry. We've always done it. It's tradition. And we've always done it this way. And so there's an expectation that you're going to come in and you're going to change nothing, but lead them into an unparalleled period of growth. And I think it's a ridiculous expectation sometimes that they don't really realize what they're asking for. It's not that they're searching for the truth. They're searching for validation. Tell us that the way we've always done it is the right way. But when you do what we've always done, we want you to do the same things that everybody else has done, but lead us from decline to a place of progression, bring us back to the old days, the glory days, and bring us back to those good old days so that we can look back at these old pictures with full pews, back when American culture was you know, a lot more friendly toward the Lord as well. And, and so there's, there's just these expectations that aren't necessarily communicated initially, but it becomes very clear over time that those expectations are there. And while everybody acknowledges that things need to change, nobody wants their part of the ministry to change. It, it has been a challenge to help folks come to a place of understanding. The most important thing about a church is its blueprint. Why do you exist? And for a lot of people, their blueprint is tradition. Their blueprint is experience. Or their blueprint is a previous pastor, and their name and their word becomes gospel. 
we would never communicate it, but now we're not as concerned with what the Bible says the church should be, what Jesus says the church should be. We're more concerned about fulfilling the expectations of what we think the church is, and that's usually, again, based on tradition and or previous pastors for whom they had a great deal of respect. And the hardest thing, I think, is to try to get people's blueprint to change. The blueprint for the church has to be scripture. It has to be the word of God. Very first sermon series I preached was along those lines, jumped right into the seven churches of Revelation. Jesus in a certain place in the Bible gave us a report card for what he loves and hates in the church. And we ought to sit up and pay attention because it belongs to him and not us. And then we began to kind of go through the blueprint of the church, looking some of the things, the activities the early church did and trying to figure out is what we're doing what Jesus intended the church to do. Are we are we following that blueprint? Are we obeying the first word of the Great Commission to go, that first verb to, to get out of our building and go? Or are we just doing what I call field of dreams missiology? If you build it, they will come. I mean, once upon a time, you could just build a lovely building, have a good preacher, some good music, and you just wait for people to file in. And maybe that worked in the 40s, 50s, even through the 80s, some might argue even the early 90s. In this post-postmodern culture, we're long past the days where we can just have a good preacher, good music, and just wait for people to file in. Churches are dying, hoping that we can retain that field of dreams missiology. And, you know, when that didn't work, that led into more seeker-sensitive approaches. Well, we still just want to attract people in. Let's change what we do to attract people. We still want to stay in church. When all the while, what Jesus wants us to do is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to go out and to live our lives missionally, every one of us, taking the gospel organically into the paths and byways that God has led us to. And so a real big part of our ministry is trying to equip our saints to be disciples, not just converts, not just people willing to take up a pew, but to accept and adopt the mission of God for them and not that the mission of God is simply for the pastor. I'm mindful that the Christian community, we've just lost Tim Keller. Mm -hmm. Tim Keller was a guy who hit on many of the things that you've talked about that we live in the the first perhaps post-Christian culture in America. I just listened to a, a message of his about some of these things so as you think about post-Christian America, post-Christian Appalachia, there's still the residue of an amazing evangelistic work that took place in Appalachia. The residue is still here, but we are in a post-Christian Appalachia. It's hard for people to hear that, but that is the reality. And so, Heath, as you think about that, what do you feel are the biggest challenges and the greatest hopes in Appalachia? The biggest challenge right now is convincing God's people that Jesus' mission for being witnesses and fulfilling the Great Commission starts right here. Being a missions-minded church is not just a church that's topping the charts in their missions giving, that we need to be actively involved in missions ourselves in our own little Jerusalem. You know, the gospel remained in Jerusalem for quite a few years before they began to send out missionaries around the world. You need a strong base here. And I think for a lot of years, this was the mission at, at one time. And then we just kind of relaxed into kind of a maintenance-based ministry. And we became comfortable with that. I would even argue complacent with that. And we began to draw traditions. And pretty soon the religion is now meant to serve me, my desire for nostalgia and my desire for tradition and comfort in my enjoyment of that ministry, as opposed to seeing that church as a place where we worship God and we carry out his mission. And I'm a part of that mission and that I should allow myself to be equipped to evangelize, allow myself to be equipped to disciple others. So convincing them that the purpose of the church involves their 
joint efforts with the pastor, not just that you hire a pastor to do your ministry, but that you hire a pastor to help equip you to join in on that ministry and to go out of the church. That's the hardest thing I think that we're going to face is getting folks to think evangelistically. And evangelism isn't just saying, God bless you. It's not just praying before a meal. It's not just living a good life in front of people and hoping they see a difference. And it's not just waiting for them to come to church that in a post-Christian culture, we have to go where they are. We have to seek out those lost sheep. We've got to engage them, I think, much in a way that Jesus did. You know, Jesus often, you know, he would meet physical needs and he would preach the gospel, whether it's feeding people, whether it's healing people. I don't believe that evangelistically we're going to get our best traction as a church in simply trying to entertain people into the kingdom. We can't compete with the entertainment of the world. We're never going to come close to that. But I think that the church has something to offer that the rest of the world can't get anywhere else. And that is people that genuinely love and care about the people who are hurting enough to reach out to those hurting people and to figure out, look at our community and just ask ourselves a question. What are the hurts and needs in our community? And how can we as a church with what we have right here, we can't do everything, but we can do something. What are the hurts and needs in the community that I live in, and how can we help meet those needs? And not just for the purpose of humanitarian efforts to pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, I'm a good person that I gave people food or we did something else, but to use that like Jesus did as a vehicle for the gospel. The reason I'm feeding you, Jesus said, is because you know I'm the bread of life. For me, that's going to be one of the hardest things is to convince people that you are part of that mission of Christ, that he has called you like he has called a pastor to represent him on earth, to be a light, to be a witness. All of us are witnesses. We're either good witnesses or bad witnesses. And so God has called each one of us into that mission and to take that seriously enough that we're willing to even set aside some of our personal desires and not get so busy trying to make a good living and a comfortable living and take our kids to 15 different sports events. And we get so busy doing our life that we forget that I'm called for a brief period of time on earth. I must work, like Jesus says, while it is day because the night comes when no man can work. That is your birthright as a Christian, is to be involved in this eternal ministry. That's the most significant thing you're going to do, not just that you provided your family a comfortable living. I think that's some of the hardest things that we're I'm running into and in trying to help folks understand that. Heath, that's one of the biggest dangers that I see right now as a pastor is that you've got these committed Christians. They are committed Christians. They love Jesus. They walk with Jesus. They read their Bibles. They attend church. And yet they've become preoccupied with leisure. We're going on vacation, preoccupied with sports. We've got to have them involved in every team possible. And the priorities ultimately, that theology has not transferred into life priorities. So when you look at Appalachia, new to Appalachia, what hope do you see? I see a number of things for reason we should have hope. Uh, we still live in a community that we do have some advantages in that when we share the gospel, for most people, there's still somewhat of a foundation there. They're aware of God. They're aware of church. Most are aware of Jesus. The problem is a lot of our people that we're reaching out to already think they're saved. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I threw a stick in the fire. I did something, you know, and, and I, somebody wrote in the flyleaf of my Bible, I'm good. And while that's a negative thing, the positive thing is they're still aware. There's a foundation. There's an appreciation and a, a respect for the Word of God, I think. I think there's a, a respect for church. I think that a lot of the people that I've talked to will still positively identify the church as a good thing. And, you know, that wouldn't be the same case if I was talking to folks in Seattle. And so I think it's good to build on that somewhat of a foundation that some folks still have, the respect that they have, capitalizing on the fact that we are a communicative people. You know, we're good at conversation. We're good at approaching people and having warm, loving conversations. 
I think so making sure that when people come into our churches, that we're also being warm and, and friendly is important, but also using that warmth to begin conversations outside of the church, like Jesus did in John 4 with the woman at the well, and, and having just conversations, normal conversations with people and that lead to spiritual things. There's a, there's a lot of good things. With Appalachia, I found that they tend to have, a, a at least the folks that I've talked to, they have a high view of the Word of God. They really want to know what God says. Now, when you say what God says, sometimes it's going to take them a time or two to believe that that's really what God is saying. But in their hearts, they know that it's the Word of God. They know ultimately that it should be followed. Sometimes it's going to take some real convincing. No, that's really what the text is saying. Despite what we've always done, this is what, what God is calling us to. For our uh, pastors, I want to commend to them the book, The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel by Dean and Sarah. It's really an, a very approachable book, but he talks about this very thing, talks about it really from more of the Bible Belt perspective. Appalachia is not the Bible Belt, but Appalachia has much of the same problem trying to reach people who believe that their names are on a church roll. And because of that, they believe they're right with God. Heath, man, there's been so much brought up here. I have notes after note after note of things that I wish we had time to talk about, but we don't. And so I really, brother, appreciate you. Heath's knowledge of the Bible is so impressive. I'm so grateful for that and his ministry here. Brother, thank you so much for coming on the Level Paths podcast today. Thank you. It's been an honor. Being content with the way things are and happy with how we've always done things around here brings a level of comfort. The problem is God hasn't called us to be comfortable. Sometimes the discomfort comes in the form of a pastor who God has called to light a fire in a congregation. If your ministry is experiencing these kinds of growing pains, let God work. Don't get in the way. And if you're the one who was called to a new place and you're not sure how to effectively minister, reach out to the Appalachian Ministry Institute. Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute exist as a resource. No matter what need you may have, Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamlin want you to reach out to them today. Rex Howe is the president of Tri-State Bible College, and you can contact him by email at rex.howe at tsbc.edu. And you can reach out to Dr. Matt Shamlin at the Appalachian Ministry Institute by email matt.shamlin at tsbc.edu. The Level Paths Podcast is an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.